At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Kenya Freeman was a finalist on Project Runway's 16th season. She's the owner of Sylvia Molly Collections, and her designs embody bold femininity with ready-to-wear pieces that are size-inclusive. Later this hour, we'll hear about Kenya Freeman's latest collection and her partnership with Shein X. Plus, with the 2023 Atlanta Roller Derby season underway, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes catches up with Atlanta Roller Derby's Gucci Mame. First... Unarmed people of color killed at the hands of law enforcement is a horrific reality in the United States. A new play, Good Bad People, from True Colors Theatre Company, explores race and class in contemporary America as a well-to-do family deals with the death of a son unjustly killed by police. The world premiere of Good Bad People is on stage now at the Southwest Art Center. Playwright Rachel Lynette joins us via Zoom with True Colors Artistic Director Jamil Jude and the play's director, E.P.O. Walabi. Welcome to City Light. Hi, thank you for having us. Hello, hello. Hello. Rachel, please tell us about the meaning of the play's title, Good Bad People. Oh, I'd love to. I don't want to give too much away because the title actually comes in a pretty important part in the play. And it's in a monologue in the play. So I hope that when people go see it, they uh, they perk up when they, when they realize what the monologue is saying. What I can say without giving too much away is the title for me comes from a question that I've had a lot of like how who is safe? What Black person is safe from this violence? And does that person exist? Is it possible to be good enough so that you can be safe? Who are the good, bad people among us? And do they exist? And it kind of comes down to what we've been taught with respectability politics and me really analyzing that and taking a fine comb and seeing if I actually think that holds to be true. Mm. Having seen the play, indeed, those words come at one of the most powerful moments in the drama. I had the feeling that character felt such despair that no amount of elite education or money made her feel safe. Is that a takeaway you wanted? I think what I want the takeaway to be is that we've been lied to and we've been told that a certain amount of money or a certain amount of prestige will protect us, but rather that what can we do to protect each other? For me, I think this is a play about community and about coming together and making sure that we always remember to have each other's backs. Like even if you're safe and your neighbor's not, is that really a good thing? And that's kind of for me what the play, I hope people take away from the play is that we are in a community together and we should be protecting each other. And that's really the only thing that will protect us is each other. As a nation, 2020 was a year that radically changed America, not only from the onset of the pandemic, 
but with our racial reckoning sparked by the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and too many others. Good Bad People was written a couple of years before 2020. Were you motivated to write this story by any real-life shootings? I was. It was June 2016. So I can't remember right now. I do know that shortly after, Philando Castile helped with me editing it. So to say that it's one person, though, honestly, when there's so many people, like the play has changed as our conversations around this has changed. Because we can't seem to go weeks without a senseless killing. Jamil, what makes good, bad people stand out as socially relevant artistic commentary? You know, what we're looking to do is to use art as a means to inspire civic action. And I think when I saw this play um, by Rachel, I had a chance to read it first as Rachel posted this play on the New Play Exchange and we uh, developed a relationship. What I loved was that it became an intra-community conversation. So much like you mentioned, Lois, since 2020, has it been about an interracial conversation? How can we as America talk amongst ourselves? But oftentimes we as a Black community have been having this conversation since time immemorial. Before Emmett Till, we know that state-sanctioned violence has been a thing, but oftentimes those conversations we hold uh, within secret inside of our own households as a theater company rooted in the Black Mecca who celebrates Black storytelling to a majority Black audience, I felt like True Colors actually could be a safe haven and a safe vehicle for us to have this conversation and elevate it. And now bring in the wider community, not just keep it around our own kitchen tables, but expand who sits at that table and the conversations that we have so that we can look out amongst one another. And like Rachel said, if I'm safe and my neighbor is unsafe, Am I really safe? I'm thankful that this play is starting to raise that as a conversation starter on a larger level using our platform. E.B., this is your directorial debut at True Colors, although you served in previous roles as assistant director and dialect coach. Would you tell us how you approached the telling of this story? Yes. So a key element, I believe, in what makes this show so brilliant is that it talks about how we are when we're grieving, which is there are also really funny moments, especially when you get back together with family or people you haven't seen in a long time to try and remember the life of the person that has just passed. So approaching a play like this one, there's so many gorgeous pieces of text and monologues and declarations of grief that Rachel has crafted. So this show was one that we spent a lot of time putting on the layers. So we dove as deep as possible to talk about the sudden loss of the character's name is Amiri in the show, to talk about the sudden loss, to talk about how you you can communicate bereavement and true deep love of somebody that you never knew that you would never see again. And then we got lighter and lighter as we took the, the the layers back on in terms of adding the comedy in, adding the moments of joy, adding the moments of of longing or wishing for connection. So that's how we that's how we got to the end of it. And we should note there are some hilarious lines in this show. <laughs> The actors are outstanding. It's a very strong cast. (laughs) How do you alternate? How do you direct the actors to alternate Mm. moods? I mean, these zingers (laughs) are being, you know, uttered amidst the backdrop of a tragedy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I actually borrowed a technique from a director that I really appreciated who directed Mrs. Bennett in town at T.O. And something that she did was to direct the show in absolute seriousness without any kind of like, oh, stop for this joke or or anything like that in terms of timing. And that resulted in the most genuine reactions to lines that we find absolutely hilarious. So that's kind of my little 
directing secret for a show that has to balance both is that we all took it very seriously so that the audience could laugh. Oh, wow. How is the topic surrounding good, bad people a subject nobody can prepare for? You know, I, I think that's kind of been hard in communicating what it is, right? Because like you want to talk about the seriousness of the issue because we want people to know just the kind of work that we do at True Colors and how we want to invite people in, especially in the season where we're all about reclaiming narratives that have been lost to the sands of time uh, in our 20th anniversary season. We wanted people to know, hey, we are trying to reclaim the ways in which we talk about state-sanctioned violence and not just frame people who are survivors of this type of thing as the grieving mothers or the grieving Black family, because uh, that conjures up an image. Uh, but we want to say, hey, collectively, we are all in grief, and it can be any one of us. How do we protect each other? But we also wanted to say, yo, this thing is really, really funny. Rachel's a really brilliant playwright, and they have found a way to weave all of this in there. So we, you know, do we lead with dark comedy, exploring the depths of grief? Like, that's a hard thing to sell. The grief of what it means to be Black in America today and live constantly on the edge that maybe you or someone that really close to you may be the next victim. It's a hard thing to, to tell, but I, I, I know that once people sit down at the Southwest Art Center and, and experience uh, Rachel's language and uh, Evie's direction and this talented cast, uh, that they'll get exactly what we're trying to say. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes discussing good, bad people with playwright Rachel Lynette, director E.B. Owalabi, and True Colors Theater artistic director Jamil Jude. It seems we are hearing about unarmed Black people being killed by police, by vigilantes, so often that there are conversations surrounding it. But what do you think's been missing from the conversation? I think that... This question is great because it actually sparked one of the one of the reasons that I was so excited to get this show was that I think that there's a conversation within the community that needed to be had. I, I know that we colloquially know it as um as respectability politics, but I, I was informed that it's actually racial uplift. I think that this conversation about how the goalposts get moved about what the victim should have done to avoid the violence has now extended to the point of of ridiculousness. I think that that part of the conversation has not been truly illuminated the way that it should be. I'm intrigued. Would you kindly define respectability politics for people who may not have encountered the term? Absolutely. So respectability politics, as we know it, which is a bit different from its its actual definition, but the respectability politics that we talk about in this show is the concept that different efforts to to be excellent in society will protect and uplift the name of the Black community. It's policed very often within the community in terms of if we don't present a certain way, if we dress a certain way, if we get a certain amount of degrees, we will be viewed as worthy of respect. And so that is a very basic definition of respectability politics. Rachel or Jamil, do you want to add anything to that? I think that was pretty great. <laughs> Thank you, Evie. Absolutely. Although police brutality impacts both Black men and women, Rachel, why do you center this story around Black women? Thank you for that question. I Because when I was writing it, I hadn't seen that story yet. I, I had yet to see a story really center on how Black women exist within these conversations. I remember just kind of wondering, like, I think, sorry, to go backwards a little bit in my brain. I had a dramaturg tell me once that I like to start a play at the end of the story and talk about, like, what's next. And so a lot of the stories that I was seeing and a lot of the plays that I was seeing 
we're about the violence happening, but we don't get to see what happens to the family after, what happens after the event, what happens after the violent event, what happens when you have to then bury your family member and you fought and you're tired. So that on one level was it, but on the next level was I think about when we talk about elections in this country, when we talk about anything, it's always like, hopefully the black woman will save us. Hopefully the black woman will save us. And I wanted to kind of show like black women are tired too. You know, we're exhausted and just this expectation, like whenever there's any kind of count, it's like 90% of black women vote a certain way. And it's like the, the constant demographic. And I, I always wonder, and I'm curious as a black woman myself of what, what does it cost for us to constantly have to be at the front of all of these movements? Like the Black Lives Matter movement was started by black queer women. Like, what does it cost us to always have to be right out in front, always have to just get up and go and do it? And what does it look like when we're tired? What do our breakdowns look like? And so that's why I really wanted to center the play on Black women. Hmm. And it's ultimately a play about grief and how a family deals with grief. I can't help but think about the spectacle. I don't know how to put this. I know that national figures political leaders want to show sympathy and solidarity with the families of wrongfully accused or innocent people who have been murdered as a result of racial prejudice. Most recently, the family from Memphis. A part of me just wishes they could grieve in private, and that where is room for them to grieve amongst themselves when they're thrust onto this national stage? And I wondered if that was intentional on your part, that these characters stay within the house, within the family, through the course of the play. Yeah, it was definitely, I wanted to show, I think all of my plays, I try to show something you wouldn't normally see. And so for me, it was definitely like, we're not seeing what they're doing publicly. We're seeing what they're dealing with internally. And that is why the whole play does take place in the house of like, this is something very private that the audience is kind of like, I don't want to say invading in on, but you're getting to see something you normally wouldn't see. And to me, that kind of makes it a little bit more sacred. Like it's a sacred invitation for me, rather than spectacle, it's an invitation. It is a you are getting a chance to see something we don't see. We don't, she talks about not being the crying mother. She talks about not wanting to make a statement. But then I also think we have a character who is the, who's the outside world trying to force their way into the house. I don't want to give away that too much, but you'll know after the first 20 minutes. <laughs> and so I also wanted to show that of like, in what ways do we try to stay private and the outside world still forces its way into? But this, for me, this play is supposed to be showing an internal versus the external. I have to take this moment to compliment the stage design because not only are we observing the internal lives of the family grieving, but inside their house we are seeing one fantastic set. I would live in that house easily. Absolutely. Shout out to the twins who gave me more than I could ever ask for. This felt like a family that very much needed the the storyline of how they keep up with the Joneses and the level of wealth that they're exposed to. Like, I think that they're a very comfortable upper middle class and the twins took that and ran with it. So I love that people get to come in and see the absolute beauty of this home and then meet these characters and are just arrested by how they accentuate the set. Yeah, Mariah and Isabel Curly Clay, yes. <laughs> they are gems here in Atlanta. They teach at Spelman over at the AUC, and they deserve to have their work seen nationally. And I think all of us are trying our best to make sure that that happens. Rachel, the character of the journalist is white. This was not the actor, but her lines. I cringed as she was angry with the family for not wanting to appear in public, make public statements, and saying this is a crime against humanity, as if a white person needed to remind the family just what kind of crime this was. 
Was that part of what you were trying to say? I think, yes. The shortest answer is yes. <laughs> but um, the little bit of the longer answer is I think that sometimes when people get really impassioned by something or they something outside of their community or they're like, they learn for the first time about something that like, I think a lot of people who are not black in 2020 kind of woke up to the things that black people have been saying for years, especially at some of the conversations that I had in 2020, which is like, I didn't know it was this bad. Or I just, I knew that it happened, but I didn't know it happened like this. And it just kind of felt like a, and I, anyone else can talk to this, but for me, it kind of felt like a splash of water in the face. Like, are you kidding? Like, how did you not know? Like we've been we've been screaming about this. Like, why did it have to get this um, brutal? Like, and was it just because you were bored at home and finally listening, you know? And so I really kind of wanted to show, even though this play was written before that, even conversations I was having before 2020 of just hearing people say things over and over again, like, I didn't know it was this bad. When like, I've known it was this bad since I was five years old. Little black kids are told from children, like, this is the reality of the world. And that that's something we have to carry. And to know that everyone else just gets to not know that gets to supposedly discover it I really wanted to figure out how to embody that in a character while also making that character human and not just an idea or a trope yeah she's I mean she is sincere but right she has no idea how inappropriately she's behaving I think that's for us you know when we talk about reclaiming hours in the second year of the Sankofa seasons like the focus being like on you know narratives that have been misconstrued and some of that you know we of course we're speaking specifically from a black perspective but like we also invite everyone else who may not share that same black perspective to come and bear witness to a narrative that they may have misconstrued that they may have been part of in the misunderstanding like i think of theater's ability to increase our capacity for empathy and whenever i'm in the theater and i'm seeing a story that does not reflect the experience that I grew up in. I consider myself privileged to sit and witness it all. Um, and I'm so happy that when we have non-Black audience members come in and they get a chance just to sit and listen and breathe and take in the story and they get to sit with maybe someone who is a Black family that has experienced losing someone at the hands of the police or other types of, of vigilante violence. And now there's, a chance, a better chance to understand something, you know, like uh, Rachel mentioned, I didn't know it was that bad, but now I actually get to feel that in a way in which the proliferation of the 24-7 news cycle, maybe we still miss it because there's still a little consumerism culture, there's still a little consumption that we do inside of it. When we just sit and we listen to a story as well told as this one, it hits our heart differently. And, you know, we become a heart with two ears when we sit in the theater in the way in which when we take it in on the news, we are receiving it, you know, through however, CNN, Fox News, whoever you're getting, MSNBC, that they're filtering it through a lens that is, you know, soaked in capitalism. <laughs> um, so, like, I love that uh, we kind of get to do it in a in the way in which we have been telling stories to one another for millennia. I'm excited that a story like this uh, is on stage with us at True Colors. True Colors Theater artistic director Jamil Jude, playwright Rachel Lynette, and director Ibi Awalabi, Good Bad People, is on stage through March 12th at the Southwest Art Center. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, Atlanta fashion designer Kenya Freeman on the importance of size inclusivity in today's clothing industry. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. 
And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Atlanta fashion designer Kenya Freeman is partnering with Sheehan X to drop her latest collection. Freeman was a finalist on Project Runway's 16th season, and she's the owner of Sylvia Molly Collections. Her designs embody bold femininity with ready-to-wear pieces that are size-inclusive. Ahead of her collection drop in March with Sheehan X, Kenya Freeman joined City Lights producer Summer Evans via Zoom and talked about the inspiration behind the name of her business. The name of my business is actually my mother's name, which is Sylvia, and Molly, which is my grandmother's name. It came by a default name because I got a cease and desist for a previous name. I just so happened to be like bummed out and talking to my mom one night many, many years ago. And I'm like, you know, Sylvia being my mom and again, Molly being my grandmother, these are like the two dopest women I know. And so it just is stuck and it's, it's going to be a forever situation. Yeah. What a great way to honor them with your. Oh, collection. she reminds me all the time. She's like, well, you know, I own a part of the business. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a mom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So how would you describe your collection? My brand, we are in a position of rebranding. We are actually in a position right now where we are focusing on all the women that have all the curvy bodies. We are moving into sizes 10 to 20. Mm -hmm. And that decision was made because I still, although there are clothing for women in that size range, I still don't feel like it's enough. I don't feel like it's enough greatness is is very few stores that I can go to as a size 16 woman that I can say I want to look fabulous I want to go here and buy clothes those options are still very limited and so we are repositioning ourselves to offer those wonderful pieces and they are going to be fabulous sexy classy trend forward they're going to be everything like you're going to want to be that girl when she walks in the room Oh, <laughs> and I saw that you offer like athleisure pieces, but a really unique take on athleisure. Could you describe what those pieces look like? So for me, I I was never uh, like a, a sportswear type of designer. I, I was always the ready to wear designer. So I'm like, how can I merge the two families, especially in the trending era where like athleisure is a thing. And mm-hmm. so I made some really cute, like, pull-up leggings with the signature logo on them and like a peplum style top, which allows women to either wear them with sneakers, sandals, if you want to put heels on and a nice earring, it still has a whole vibe to it all by itself. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to like merge that because a lot of times you don't always want to wear like a, you know, a really nice dress or, or jeans. Yeah, or if you're going mm-hmm. to the airport and you still want to be fabulous, you can put on one of these outfits and they come in like, I have blue, I have gray, I have black. And you can put on one of these and still feel fabulous, but still, you know, very comfy because it's in a beautiful stretch ponty, which is the best fabric for those types of things. Did the pandemic or quarantining uh, inspire any of this athleisure collection? Oh, absolutely. I was, I'm a, I'm a numbers girl. And so I'm looking at all of these brands and the amount of money that's coming in during the pandemic. I was working with a company and on with some other designs and I was looking at the 30 and 40, and these are large brands, but the type of dollars that was coming in just off of lounge clothes and mm-hmm. easy stuff. And I'm like, these companies are making 
a crazy amount of money on these types of things. And I'm like, why not tap into that market where, you know, and a lot of times, you know, even outside of the pandemic, we still, we still want to be, we want to be very cute, but we want to be very comfortable. Right. Absolutely. And a lot of us are working from home and, you know, just wearing sweats all day or staying in your PJs all day can be depressing. So to have this transition piece where you feel cute, but still comfortable is important. Yes. I had a good girlfriend and she calls me up one day and she's like, I got an idea. I think that we should make Zoom clothes. And I was like, <laughs> Zoom clothes? She was like, girl, we could make a trillion dollars. We're just going to make fabulous looks from the waist up. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Patent that. That's a great idea. <laughs> So I wanted to talk about your time on season 16 of Project Runway. That was the first season where designers such as yourself worked with models of all sizes. How did it feel to be a part of that new experience for the show? I honestly feel like I am part of history. It was a first for so many things. It was a first for, um, you know, models of all sizes. It was a first for the most you know, racially exclusive group. It was a first and it was the absolute last time we saw Tim and Heidi. And I'm like, oh no, because I love me some Tim. I thought that it was great. A lot of people buckled under pressure because, you know, some people cannot work with a curvy body. And that was no challenge for me. I was like, bring it on. Like I was excited to see all these hips and curves. Right. You had an advantage in that regard, you know, with working with plus size models. Oh yeah. I was ready. And the crazy thing is I never got, I got a lot of the very slim models. I never got (laughs) the super curvy models to towards the end. And I'm just like, are they holding these girls back for me? Like, I I mean, we had people literally crying in the corner because they did not want to work with these girls. Oh my gosh. Yes, it got crazy. But the th- the greatest thing about the model range was even the model who was like a size two or four, she still had like hips and butt. And so in the, in the standard industry as a model, she didn't get casted a lot. Mm. So we had girls that were from zero to 24 and, but they all had like different body types. I mean, very different model types that put them outside of industry standards for modeling. And so the great thing was it gave them also an opportunity to get work in an industry where like, even though they were small girls, they still didn't fit the mold of what is considered like a a regular standard size model. So it was great. It was, it was so many different body types. It was, I mean, it was everything. But for me, I was like, game on. Let's go. I am ready. I want to do this. But the larger girls, they were just holding them from me. I'm like, give them to me. Mm. I think also the most disappointing part was when I, you know, with the people that I'm on the show with, and I can hear like the comments and the remarks, you know, about the plus size girls. And I've always, I've been a 16 for years and I'm just like, well, some of these girls look just like me. So I'm like, do you have that same attitude and opinion about me? Right. Mm -hmm. It it was, it was kind of, it was, it was sad. Especially, I mean, this season aired in 2017. It was not that long ago. And I feel like there has been some progression, but what are your thoughts on how the industry has evolved in just these last six years? I think that there has been some progression. I think that there are a lot more brands that cater to larger sizes or have added extended sizing. Um, I don't think it's because they're down for the cause. I think that it has been like a movement and it's a cash cow. So it's like, why not add anything, you know, is this business? It's like, okay, plus size is trending the girls are fussing they need clothes they're buying clothes let's just sell it I think like most things when it's a new thing I think it's tolerated I still don't think it's truly accepted even every time I mention that I'm you know going into larger sizes I've gotten emails about I'm I'm promoting obesity it's not healthy I've got all the stuff but here's the thing 
it's not about promoting obesity. I want, I think that everyone should be as healthy as they need to be, but that means something different to everybody. And also, it's not my business to tell anybody to lose weight. And also, <laughs> I think that everyone has the right to be beautiful in clothing, whatever size you are, wherever you are in your weight journey, whatever that means. But I think every, and, and what's the best way to make someone maybe want to, you know, do better or eat better is to put them in something that's really, really pretty and build up that self-confidence and they feel great about themselves to want to do, to want to do more. Absolutely. That is a very good point. No, that's true. I mean, because it, you even see it in jeans where you might try on a size four at one store and a size four somewhere else, and then you don't fit into that. And then you start thinking, well, what is it wrong about me? You know, whereas if you come to a collection such as yours and you're like, I can fit in all these different sizes and I feel beautiful, then it really empowers somebody. Yes. I want everyone to feel great about, I think everybody deserves to feel good about themselves. And it's, it's not any of our jobs to tell someone, you know, that they should be this or they should be that. It just shouldn't. And I, I'm, I'm not one for like putting people down. And to your point, yes, there are so many brands that the sizing is all over the place, but it's a standard. Their sizing is like a standard across the board. And most mm -hmm. brands try to stay within that, but they can really call a four whatever they want. It could be a two. It could be an eight. Uh, you know, some brands you like, did I, did I eat too much yesterday? Right. Or, <laughs> I lose weight yesterday like some brands will make you feel really really bad or really really great <laughs> yeah yeah I have avoided certain stores for that same reason and gone into certain stores for that same reason so like the one thing that pushed me to want to do like more larger sizes I think my deal breaker I had just had like a wonderful month right and I had like gotten a good check and I was like you know what it is time for me to like buy myself something nice because I don't, you know, I'm always mm -hmm. at the grocery store or UPS or work. I'm like, I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to buy something. And I go to this major department store, fancy store. I'll leave them nameless. <laughs> and I walked the store and there was nothing. There was all these beautiful dresses and it was this beautiful jacket and had like the jewels on the shoulder and like, it was just great stuff and it was nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing to fit me. And again, mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm a size 16, but this isn't making it. And I feel like I'm on the smallest spectrum of what they consider plus in the industry. And I'm like, so what are the girls that are bigger than me? What do they do? And I'm like, you know what? That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making my own. Making yeah. my own. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, good. So I want to talk about the partnership with uh, Shein X, but before we get into the collection and uh, what Shein X is, I did want to talk a little bit about Shein as a whole. They are considered one of the most popular clothing brands of 2022, and they've only been around a few years. Now, they have come under fire for their fast fashion model. And there's been a little bit of criticism of how much carbon dioxide emissions they're putting out there, and even some controversy over their treatment of retail workers. What are your thoughts on the improvements that Shein has said they will implement to address these issues? I trust them. I trust them. And I trust them why. Ever since I've started working with Shein, they have been the most, the most supportive people for me and my brand. They have looked out for me in days that I didn't even know how cash was going to come through. If I call on them and I need them for anything, they're there. So because I know for a fact that I'm dealing with excellent, good people who have a good moral standing, I whatever they say they're going to do, I trust that they're going to do whatever they're going to do because they've always come through for me every single time that I've needed them. Mm-hmm. You are presenting your collection with Shein X. Can you tell us what Shein X is exactly and how did you get connected with them? 
Well, Shein X is a wonderful platform that Shein has offered small brands. So Shein decided that, hey, we want to give small brands who don't have the opportunity to have a major platform like ours or to sell on a level that we're selling, we're going to allow them to create on our platform and create in your own way, no restrictions. Create on our platform, sell on our platform, make money on our platform. And for a lot of small brands, that is a huge, huge, huge opportunity, especially seeing the number of people that come through Shein and are buying with Shein on a regular basis. I got an email from Shein, like um, it was right before the pandemic, I think it was 2020. Um, and I thought that I was being punked. I'm like, this is not a real email. And so it was actually a real email from them. And they were like, they wanted to work together. And I was like, this is great. And we got on a call and we talked and he, you know, told me about the program and what they were doing. And we have been a big, happy family ever since. Um, the great thing is, uh, well, for me, it, it couldn't have come at a better time because it was, the first collection dropped, I want to say it was during the pandemic. And man, like I was non-essential. Like I was totally non-essential. And we were making masks and everything. And like, and like what I was making for them totally sustained me through the entire process. So it couldn't have come at a better time. I just thought it was a genius business model. And I don't see any other companies doing what they are doing. Mm -hmm. And why do you think that they are most popular around Gen Zers and millennials when it comes to their merchandise? I mean, Gen Zers, they don't have any money. <laughs> most of them don't have any money. So it's really cute clothes at a great price and it's really trendy stuff. It's all the cute. I actually found out about Shein and it's so interesting the timing in which we all got connected because prior like just three or four months ago my younger cousins that and they're like that 17 to 24 and they love it I mean like they they swear by it right and they don't like what do you want for Christmas you can just get me something from Shein just what I'm like who is she in <laughs> and I remember having to go to we were going to Mexico that summer and I'm like well you know I'm gonna I'm gonna try it out you know I bought some bathing suits some cover-ups and they were like the prices were great in the colors. I'm like, this is great. And so when it came, I'm like, okay, the fit is good. I'm like, okay, this is cute for the price point. And sure enough, that <laughs> November is when I got an email. It's such interesting, but wow. they love, again, they love it. It's just, it's again, the price point. I mean, younger people don't have a ton of money. I mean, why not buy, you know, a, a top that's 20 bucks, you know, they can afford that. Right, right. Uh, it's good marketing, especially I've seen a lot of it on TikTok. <laughs> That's kind of how I found out about the brand. And um, right. And who else is like killing TikTok right now right. in that category? <laughs> yeah, those Shein hauls will definitely get you. Oh, <laughs> uh, and they do such a great job with them. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about your new collection launching in March? Can you give us a little preview? Right. Okay, so... Shein had this wonderful idea of merging artists and designers together. And I never thought, I guess when I create, I'm, I create by myself. So I was kind of like, well, hmm, how would I work pair with someone? But it's actually a pretty genius idea where an artist, you know, they put their artwork or their textile design. And then I put my fashion design and together we make something really, really amazing. Wow. So this particular collection is really loud. It's very colorful and bright. Um, it's more of, we called it like a, like a, like a resort collection in a way. It has a motorcycle jacket. It has a long flowing maxi with cutouts. Um, it's really, really pretty. The, the print is more of like a, an animal print with like a flame thing going on. And you have like pinks and oranges and some lime in there. It's, it's pretty awesome. You just, you would have to see it. It's pretty, pretty awesome. Atlanta fashion designer, Kenya Freeman, owner of Sylvia Molly Collections, 
Her collection with Sheehan Axe drops in March. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes catches up with Atlanta Roller Derby's Gucci Mame. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The 2023 Atlanta Roller Derby season is underway. This Saturday, March 4th, Atlanta will host Virginia's River City Roller Derby for a bout at the Yarab Shrine Center Auditorium. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes has more. As a founding member of the Women's Flat Track Derby Association, Atlanta Roller Derby has been skating strong in our city since 2004. Last year, I caught up with skater Anna Bembrook, a.k.a. Gucci Mame, and she provided an overview of the sport. It is a high-intensity, full-contact sport on four wheels. Um, You have a group of five people from each team that are just skating through, trying to get points, trying to avoid getting hit, trying to get hit. It's kind of complex the first time that you come and watch it. It might be a little confusing, unlike any sport that you've ever seen before. But once you once you watch it, if you pick it up easily, it's just a really fun, really exciting, invigorating sport to watch just these strong individuals going through and scoring points and making excitement for the fans. Roller Derby has gone through many transformations over its almost 90-year existence. At one point, it was seemingly staged entertainment, akin to professional wrestling. But since its revival in the early 2000s, the sport has become a showcase for serious athletic abilities. Roller Derby games are called bouts, and Benbrook went on to describe the atmosphere. It's a lot of fun. The bouts that we have here in Atlanta, it's family-friendly. We have vendors, we have halftime performances. We typically do a double header. So we'll have one game and then we'll have kind of a break in the middle for people to, you know, get food, go to the vendors, whatever the case is, and then our second game. And during that middle time frame, we usually have local entertainment, musicians. Um, we've had like dance performances. Um, we just try to tap in with our local community and provide them a space to just show who they are and what they're doing. So it's it's a whole to-do for a lot of people. We have our bouts at Shriners off of Pont. So it's like a smaller space, very intimate. And it's just, it's so exciting. It's invigorating. People cheering for different teams and for different players. And it's just, it's the full to-do. If you're considering going to watch a bout in person, Bembrook, aka Gucci Mame, offered a little insight into how the sport is played and how the team stays safe on the track. The person that has a star on their helmet is known as the jammer. Uh, That person is typically the point scorer. So that's the one that you want to watch to see how the points are being scored. And we skate in a counterclockwise direction around the track. The rest of the players are known as the blockers. They don't have any stars on their helmets, just their regular helmets. And those are the individuals who are trying to hinder the opposing jammer from getting through and from getting their points. We are fully protected. We have a helmet, we have mouth guards, elbow pads, wrist guards, knee pads. Um, some individuals even choose to wear like padding around their hips or wear shin guards or any additional protection, but that's not required. Anna Benbrook, a.k.a. Gucci Mame, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. The Atlanta roller derby season continues through late September, and their next doubleheader bout is this Saturday at 5 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. More information is on our website, wabe.org. 
The Black Women's Film Network Summit is back in person this year at the Loudermilk Event Center on March 25th. BWFN is in its 26th year as an organization. The nonprofit was founded to prepare black women for the entertainment industry, seeking to embolden and elevate women through education, resources, and networking. The BWFN Summit will feature panels, master classes, and fireside chats by dozens of top industry experts. Registration will open soon. You can find up-to-date announcements on their website, blackwomenfilm.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., We'll kick off Women's History Month with the one and only Stacey Abrams. Plus, our series, Atlanta's Savory Stories. For March, food contributors Asada Reed and Akila McConnell discussed the female entrepreneurs who influenced our city's diverse cuisine. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation about good, bad people, the True Colors Theater Company production on stage at the Southwest Art Center, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm-hmm. WABE. <laughs> Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.